внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. They've been called a pretext for mischief against the Baltics in Poland. They've been called a means for Russia to increase its military footprint in Belarus. They've been called Kremlin saber-rattling, a message to the West, and a very expensive and noisy psyop. And they've been called routine military exercises that are nothing more than business as usual. But whatever you call them, the joint Russian-Belarusian Zapad 2021 military exercises that will begin next week seem to have everybody's attention. So what should we expect from Zapad? 2021. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Dowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic Mount Vernon, Virginia, on the land once owned by George Washington, where he is hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan the Kogi and Finn the Kali, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russian Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. It's good to see you again, and a big hello to Ivan and Finn. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me back on uh, your podcast. Great, great to have you. So, Michael, I, I wanted to start off our discussion uh, about Zappin by contrasting this year's exercises to the last time these exercises were held back in 2017. Uh, back then, Lukashenko was clearly not, Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, was clearly not interested in joining Vladimir Putin's conflict with the West. And he attempted to bring a level of transparency to the exercises uh, both, I believe, to protect himself from Russia and to reassure Belarus's Western neighbors that the drills would not be used as a platform for mischief. And among other things, Lukashenko invited observers from seven countries, Ukraine, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Sweden, and Norway, as well as representatives of the UN, the OSCE, NATO, and the Red Cross to monitor the exercises back in 17, uh, 2017. He also went out of his way to assure Ukraine, Poland, and the Baltics that he would not allow Belarusian territory to be used to attack or intimidate other countries. Um, at the time, Russia was so displeased with Lukashenko's behavior um, that neither Putin nor Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu visited Belarus during the exercises at all. And Russian military commanders actually didn't stay for this ceremonial dinner after the drill. Lukashenko returned the snub, of course, canceling plans to make a joint appearance with Putin at a Russian military installation after and after the exercises. He publicly stressed his desire to improve relations with the West. Well, that, as we say, was then, and this, as we say, is now. Uh, Lukashenko's brutal crackdown on dissent following last year's contested election, the effective hijacking of Ryanair Flight 4978 and the kidnapping of dissident journalist Roman Pratatsevich, and the manufactured migrant crisis on the Lithuanian border have made him a pariah in the West. And he's clearly now going all in with Putin. Now, Michael, after that long kind of lead up, I want to ask you a question. How relevant is this broader political context for what we might see next week when Zappa 2021 kicks off on September 10th? Back in 2017, I remember you writing in War on the Rocks that we should not fear Zappa. We should learn from it. Well, should we fear Zappa 2021 given the current political context? Sure, Brian. I think a great question. I really appreciate the context you sort of tried to present here. Uh, first, you know, when looking at a major strategic exercise like Zapad, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, there's good cause for apprehension because, as always, these exercises uh, can be used to mask prepositioning of forces uh, with other intent. And the Russia has a checkered history here. We're, we all know it, for example, uh, using strategic exercises in the Caucasus and in summer of 2008 to prepare position forces. Uh, some respect ahead of the Russia-Georgia war, and I think much more significantly using uh, uh, undeclared snap readiness and exercise in February of 2014 in order to move units into position in the western southern military district 
but then to conduct the seizure and annexation of Crimea, right? So this is, I want to bring that history up and address it right up front. That's why people are apprehensive about these exercises, because countries deploy forces, the capability is there, the intent is not always clear, or at the very least, you can never be 100% sure of what it is, and no, no analyst worth their salt is going to give you a guarantee that they know for a fact uh, what, what intentions are, and they can always change. Um, there was a lot of sensationalism surrounding the 2017 Zapad exercise. Yep. A lot of things had changed in politics between Russia, United States, and, uh, and U.S. European allies, right, following 2014. And there were actually quite a bit of disinformation put out, in part, to be frank, I think by Belarus, because Belarus was very much playing this two-level game, right? Lukashenko was trying to take advantage of the Russian war with Ukraine, right, to basically try to have us cake. Uh, in either two, right? He could be an authoritarian regime in Eastern Europe while also getting sanctions lifted and having this uh, uh, increased engagement with the West and with Europeans, because now compared to Vladimir Vladimirovich, uh, he was the far least, less worse dictator in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so Bill, that did actually dramatically affect the exercise. So a lot of people expect the Zappa 2017 to be a really big exercise. Back then, sensational headlines saying they'd be something like 100,000 troops, right? participating in it, and a lot of people worried that Russia would leave forces in Belarus after mm -hmm. the fact, sort of be like an over-takeover. All right, where did that come from? Well, first, as exercise Zappa 2013 was was pretty sizable. I think some people ballpark it around 75,000 troops. Mm -hmm. A lot of things here, to be frank, depends on what you count, right, in terms of forces participating around Russia, what you count as part of the exercise, also the time period and duration over which you count them. That said, Zappa 2017 was visibly curtailed. Russians cut back the plans for it. Mm -hmm. They didn't really deploy forces in Western Belarus at all. They clearly scaled back the exercise, right? In fact, probably well a year in advance of it. And so uh, those expecting a larger, a, a larger Russian military deployment during Zappa 2017 got burned. The exercise is quite smaller mm -hmm. uh, than they anticipated. You know, I'd say ballpark it maybe more around 50,000, 60,000 troops. Mm -hmm. so, and let's, so let's talk about why and what happened. And and Belarusians put out a lot of rumors, maybe, you know, basically trying to pretend that they were the victim of Russian security requirements and they were sort of the involuntary participant mm -hmm. of the thing. And then painting the political optics around it to make clear to the West that, you know, they have to do this with the Russians, but no, they are not sort of a Russian instrument against the West or against NATO and the like. Um, and, and, and of course, uh, everything's changed since, since 2020, realistically, right? Uh, that two-level game's completely gone. Belarus and Lukashenko have absolutely no option but to become much more firmly ensconced in Russia's economic and security orbit. Mm -hmm. Their ability to maneuver between Russia and the West is de facto non-existent. Let's just be mm -hmm. frank about that. Uh, and Minsk appears to be in, in full regime survival mode. As essentially, they've now painted Poland, Lithuania as critical external threats. And you've seen the mm -hmm. rhetoric coming out over the past years. Belarusian troops have been drilling along near the Polish border and the like, as though there's right. going to be some kind of Belarusian-Polish war. Um, well, of course, it's meant to, to, to create a narrative and, and to, to create a framework for all this. So what's going to happen in 2021? Well, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, first, I think that this exercise is going to be visibly larger than Zappa 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to say it's going to necessarily have 100,000 troops in it or give some other sensational, very round number, because I know... Me because they're saying 12,800 right now is the number that's popping up in all the reports on this. You're saying it could be going to go into six digits. Yeah. So let me actually let me let me let me touch on that. All right. The reason why every Zapad exercise, Russia and Belarus release numbers ahead of the exercise that are less than 13,000 troops, because the Vienna document is a political agreement that requires the invitation of observers, particularly OSCE observers, to any exercise in the region that exceeds those parameters, right? Uh -huh. These numbers are total nonsense. They are not true. Let's just be very clear about that. In 2017, they filed for the exercise 12,700 troops as total participating, of which 3,000 would be Russian troops involved mm -hmm. on Belarusian soil, okay? The actual number of the exercise that I said, fairly ballpark, maybe 50 to 60K. Uh -huh. This year, they have filed 12,800 troops, Brian, that will be participating in the exercise, of which 2,500 Russian troops will be involved on Belarusian soil. I'm going to tell you now early on, and we should get into this uh, perhaps later in the discussion, 
There are easily already 2,500 Russian troops on Belarusian soil today, <laughs> and the exercise has yet to begin. So we already can make a safe estimate about the giant discrepancy between the empirical reality of what's going to happen and the numbers being released. And right. they're being released for this reason. Russia and Belarus, Belarus much more softly and kindly, but nonetheless, have been circumscribing the the obligations under the uh, under the the agreement here and uh, have been doing this for a very long time. They've been pretty consistent in that regard, from my point of view. Uh huh. So um, so what so the, the, these numbers though are we talking about just in Belarus or is the or does this include the portion of the exercise that takes place on Russian territory? So the exercise that is currently slated is going to be involving about. Uh, five training ranges and some particular sector in Belarus and maybe uh, nine in Russia. In reality, it's going to encompass the Western Military District, Belarus, uh, and uh, the Northern Fleet uh, Joint Strategic Command as well. And there'll be a whole host of parallel exercises taking place in Russia, SNAP readiness checks, and the like. So what you're going to get during this exercise is you're going to have a massive SNAP readiness check that will put, bring Russian forces to alert, well in advance. Uh, probably coming up soon. And then after that, you're going to have a sort of a focused exercise that takes place across all these ranges, right? Like I said, maybe about nine or so in Russia and, and, and five or so in Belarus. But this is probably a more arbitrary limitation. The exercise mm -hmm. in itself is much larger and involves forces across the Western Military District, right? The Northern Fleet, um, and, and as always, it depends how you count, because it depends on how you count level of involvement. A lot of units will be involved in this exercise in some way, shape, or form, right? Uh -huh. A much more limited number of units will actually move out of their garrisons with their gear, you know, load it up on rail hubs, move to the training ranges, deploy there, and, and spend uh, the week or two there, right? Uh, so the actual exercise is September, you know, 10 to 16, but understand that the overall kind of time period run for the sex size and events surrounding it is quite longer. Now, before I want to dive into the larger kind of political and geopolitical implications of this, I did want to talk a little bit about the scenario that's being simulated in these exercises. Um, I know you pay close attention to this to kind of get to get get understandings about get an understanding of Russia's intentions and their capabilities. What's what is the scenario and what do you think we can learn from Zappa 2021 about Russia's intentions and capabilities? Right. So, so Zappa, for people to understand, is a massive stress test for the Russian military and also supporting civilian agencies, right? It does simulate a regional uh, war between Russia and a coalition of NATO member states backed by the United States that may escalate to a large-scale conflict. It is both about the ability of Russian forces to essentially demonstrate their readiness, ability to move, deploy military power and stuff in the region and, and the like, but the scenarios for it are pretty interesting and worth diving into. So in 2017, the scenario was essentially that, you know, Western coalition of states uh, will, will be attacking and engaging a sort of Russian, Belarusian force, which is typically referred to as the Northern Coalition, right? So in 2017, the Western states included the imaginary adversaries of Vaishnoria, Lubania, and Vesbaria. And these were basically Lithuania, Latvia, and Poland, right? And they were essentially trying to partition Belarus and annex Belarus's northwestern region, right? The, we know from Belarusian official sources that the scenario from 2021 is pretty similar, but different, actually different in an interesting way. So again, we have a, you know, a northern coalition, which is Russia and the Belarus Union state, and we have the evil western coalition, which this year consists of Nayaris, Pomoria, and something called the Polar Republic. Uh, yes, that's right. The Polar Republic. You don't know about the expansionist Polar Republic, but that's that looks like it might be a thing. At least according to what we know from Belarusian sources, the Russian MOD has not given their official briefing yet. Uh -huh. is what we have from I think from the Belarusian MOD. Um, okay, yeah, the Polar Republic. I know probably wondering, what is that? Heck, what is Nayaris and Pomoria? Um, so Nayaris pretty clearly appears to be Lithuania. Pomoria is most likely Poland, um, and Polar Republic looks to be the northern dimension of the conflict and is most likely Norway or some combination of Norway. Uh -huh. okay. and, uh -huh. and that actually makes a lot of sense because it adds both a northern vector that historically has been present in uh, the Zapad exercise, as the northern fleet has usually been very active during this exercise, right? And, and it adds that more clear role for the northern fleet joint strategic command as well. 
But a fairly sizable exercise in the north called Trident Juncture in, mm -hmm. in recent years has only been growing larger. So uh, it, it seems to incorporate uh, that sort of more northwestern uh, strategic vector into the exercise. All right. So um, essentially, this, the 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 scheme for this for this year is that uh, having failed to destabilize Belarus with non-military means, the titular kind of evil Western coalition decides to use force to achieve their political aims, and the Northern coalition has to compel them to terminate hostilities on acceptable terms. That's that's essentially the gist. Uh, the exercise typically has two phases. So in the first kind of three days, Russian forces tend to assimilate a NATO coalition intervening in Belarus to which they respond. So the exercise is kind of a meeting engagement. And this is all about Russia's ability to raise units on alert, mobilize reserves, deploy, you know, act, these active units to the combat zone, to the training ranges. And most importantly, simming a large-scale airspace attack from a global force, basically the United States and NATO, uh, against Russian forces and Russian critical infrastructure in the homeland, right? Um, and, and, and so Russian forces are basically trying to deploy and get out from under fire, to go to go and organize themselves to go engage this invading Western coalition. Phase two involves a joint Russian-Belarusian force, uh, essentially stabilizing the situation, and this really tests the ability of you know the Joint Strategic Command of Western Military District to control the force in the theater and for the general staff to execute strategic operations. Mm -hmm. Right, basically. What kind of happens just to get for a couple seconds into the maybe into the nuts and bolts of it? The Russian ground forces simulate kind of a maneuver defense. They kind of degrade the incoming offensive, draw the enemy into fire cauldrons or pockets, and then they conduct a counteroffensive, right, against this, this invading uh, Western coalition. Meanwhile, the Russian strategic deterrence forces simulate a bunch of strikes against critically important targets in theater and against the infrastructure of the homelands uh. of, of opposing states, right? So they conduct a whole host of non-nuclear kind of long-range strikes. And that demonstrates the ability of the Russian military to impose pretty substantial costs um, uh, against the opponents. And, uh, you know, a big part of the exercise is, is really Russian general staff dealing with what they kind of call in slang a, a Western Trojan horse strategy. Their belief that the U.S. first uses indirect means to destabilize the country, right? That's kind of what they think is happening in Belarus and that Lithuanian Poland are behind this because they're backing the Belarusian opposition, mm -hmm. you know, when he has recognized Tikhanovska and the like. Um, and then and then the their adversary employs advanced conventional capabilities to paralyze the armed forces and try to achieve their war aims during that initial period of war, right? That's, uh -huh. that's kind of that's kind of what the exercise simulates is the conditions that that trans but of course it's much more focused on the on the heavy military and kinetic aspect of the fight. Right. It's a stress test for that system, and it's a stress test for the, you know, for the Russian ability to mobilize both the civilian agencies to transition to economy, to a wartime footing, to mobilize and deploy reserves, all these things that simulate kind of a large-scale war. Right. Now, I was thinking about this northern element, this, this, this polar republic, and I can't help but wonder if that component of the exercises doesn't reflect a Russian concern about – Finland and Sweden's um, increased uh, collaboration with NATO. I mean, they're members and everything, but name only. They 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 exercise with NATO and 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 the like. Their participation in any conflict would basically change the equation, um, especially in terms of the ability to resupply the Baltic states. Do you think that might be that might reflect some concern on Moscow's part about the increased kind of closeness between Finland and Sweden with NATO? I mean, that's a very fair point. So I think there's two things happening. First, you have much more increased Norwegian-U.S. military cooperation and increasing uh, basing and, and utilization of Norwegian territory by U.S. forces to some extent. For example, whether it's uh, submarines or the recent deployment of B-1B bombers, things of that nature, although the actual U.S. military presence in Norway is quite small. And yes, the increased cooperation of non-NATO member states who are nonetheless NATO partners like Sweden and Finland. Now, what the roles in a conflict, you know, that very much depends on the actual contingency, I think, in the scenario and the context of it. Uh, is it a factor of Russian playing? Absolutely. You know, Russian uh, uh, officials and those who have spoken to the subject have always made it clear that they don't see Finland and Sweden 
as neutral. But what that, of course, means is open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. To be honest, none of us really know, right? That nobody knows who they are until a conflict comes up and that begins to reveal at the end of the day uh, right. uh, the, the, the true nature of our respective commitments to each other, right? No, You can say all sorts of things before, uh, uh, before you actually uh, place before the facts of the situation. So we, I think you're very right. I think there is, of course, a northern vector to Russian thinking and planning, and always had been. Um, you know, part of the challenge for us has always been that, you know, in some respects, remember the United States and Russia are actually really member, really neighbors, not just in uh, the Russian Far East, that is the, you know, the Nering Strait across from Alaska, but also, you know, on a transpolar flight route between the United States right. and Russia. We're actually not separated by that much time in terms of flight time and our ability to inflict significant damage to each other's homelands, right? So they're always deeply aware of this. And this is a scenario that does simulate a Russian conflict with NATO and the United States. Uh-huh. Now, I wanted to broaden this out from the exercises themselves to the larger geopolitical con uh, context that's going on here between Russia and Belarus on one hand and the West on the other. I just want to throw a few data points out there that are happening right around the time of these exercises. Some of this we've discussed already. Um, but this week, actually, Russian anti-aircraft missile troops arrived in the western Belarusian city of Rodna uh, near the border uh, with Poland and Lithuania. They arrived to set up a joint military training center. Um, its purpose, its stated purpose, is to train Belarusian crews um, for our Russian Su-30SM fighter jets, or the Sukhoi fighter jets, and anti-aircraft missile systems. That's one data point. The other data point, Michael, you brought up uh, last time we spoke in this podcast, and you basically said that the the constant rotation of Russian troops through Belarus and the record number of exercises the two countries have been carrying out this year in the run-up to Zapad effectively amount to a de facto Russian permanent troop presence in Belarus. Um, and then the third is, like, I've been watching Lukashenko's statements about the, the proposed air base in eastern uh, Belarus and and Baburisk that 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 the that Putin's been wanting for a while. Lukashenko has been resisting, and now Lukashenko seems to be indicating that he's ready to acquiesce on this. This would be a base that would station Russian Su-27 fighter jets manned by Russian pilots. Um, I'm wondering if, with given all these data points, right? And with Zapad going on, you're saying it's going to be bigger than it was before. The political context now where Lukashenko is kind of all in with Putin, with the Western, the, the opportunity to kind of woo the West is, is, is off the table now. Is this going to turn into a watershed? The, are these exercises going to turn into a watershed a before and after moment when it's when it when it afterwards we basically do have a, day, a not just a de facto, but a de jure a permanent Russian troop presence in Belarus? Is it moving in that direction? Thanks, Brian. Yeah, I think that basically the uh, the turning point is 2020, right? I think I think Belarus has no options. It's not uh, off well from an economic standpoint in terms of access to capital, besides that that it can get from countries like Russia. It doesn't have much room for diplomatic maneuver vis-a-vis -vis Russia anymore, and this has always been that Lukashenko two-step game you're familiar with. Right. I don't know if the airbase the endless saga was airbase will translate to Russia necessarily getting this airbase, but it was never about Russians being able to deploy Su-27s in Belarus. From a practical military standpoint, that's not, I don't think that's why they wanted the airbase. It doesn't, doesn't do anything for them in, in, in that respect. The, uh, the situation that I see unfolding is first, we have this joint air defense training center that is a de facto permanent military Russian presence yes. in Belarus that's actually in, in western Belarus towards Poland's border. Uh, two S-300 PM-2 TELS vehicles have arrived there recently, in recent days, as have Russian Su-30SMs mm -hmm. uh, from the looks of it. So it's becoming real, which tells us they didn't just talk about it, they didn't just sign an agreement right. early this year. It's a real thing. There are real air defense systems there now, and it's happening, right? There's always a conversation that, that we should have because, you know, Russia and Belarus sign a lot of things over the years. Right. Very few of those things that they used to sign on paper would, would uh, translate into real reality. Right. So we see the differences that actually, yes, Russian military units really are arriving. 
um, this facility is being set up and established. We don't know what the size of the Russian military presence will be. And there's going to be one in Kaliningrad, too. That's there's I think three. that's worth noting. And there's one in Nizhny Novgorod as well. There's three. Mm -hmm. the, the two that I'm concerned about, though, are the one in yep. Belarus and the one in Kaliningrad for obvious reasons. Yep. Yeah, there's three total. One in Kaliningrad one, uh, and and one uh, appears to be in Grodno. And uh, in terms of overall Russian military presence, Yes, there is kind of a near constant presence that we can see now. We can see that Russians are basically kind of doing, they're doing what they think NATO's been doing to them, which is essentially having constant exercises, rotating forces through Belarus, maintaining a steady presence there, and maintaining a constant presence, even if titularly declaring it to be on a temporary basis. And so their, uh, their goal yeah, is to, as you can see, now much more... Uh, really, really bring, really, really bring Belarus much more into the Russian military orbit. And when we look at the two main agreements that, that, that exist in the military space, first that Belarus is part of this joint uh, air defense system vis-a-vis -vis Russia that's typically been under Belarusian command, but you can see there's going to be changes taking place there, and it's not kind of clear what the future of that uh, of that arrangement will be, but I think it's going to be much more robust. But the more important part that's significant for Zapad is that Russia and Belarus have uh, a standing arrangement as uh, a regional grouping of forces, an RGF, right? And this arrangement, Brian, is essentially an operational level or maybe operational strategic formation that in the event of a military threat, a crisis, right, the Belarusian military will be combined backstop by units from the Russian military to form this regional grouping of forces. Mm -hmm. Okay. Previously, the Russian contribution to it was the 20th Army. That's been replaced by the First Guards Tank Army. This is why you see the First Guards Tank Army deploying units already into Belarus. Lukashenko, speaking last year, had alluded that there have been recent changes in joint defense planning and that the sectors for where this regional grouping of forces would be employed in Belarus in the event of a military crisis has been revised. And we can discern by what is happening by the training range selection and deployment of Russian forces that they revised the sectors much closer to the Polish and Lithuanian borders, right? So whereas in 2017, we saw very little Russian military presence, right, in Western Belarus, we're gonna see the opposite most likely in 2021. Um, and that these exercises will reflect this change and we should talk about the fact that unlike previous iterations, right, where there's a snap readiness check, then we see substantial Russian forces deploying, right, to military range of Russian Belarus. Since, since July, we have seen a number of formations from First Guards, Tank Army, and some supporting units deploying into Belarus already, right? Uh -huh. And we can probably say that there are already several thousand Russian troops in Belarus, most likely, that are deploying to training ranges ahead of this exercise. And the exercise, you know, is still uh, more than a week away. And this is actually really, to me at least, a really interesting change in, in how they've been doing things. Um, and you can basically, this is another example, right? So Russian troops are in Belarus as part of this exercise well more than two months ahead of the thing. Right. Okay. And then they'll be there sometime after September mm -hmm. 16th, because they're all going to leave in one day, right? So, and then after that, there'll be some other probably joint Russian Belarusian exercise right. that will take place, and and so on and so forth. Um, I'm just kind of like painting this picture, and I actually myself am wondering why they've deployed so early into Belarus and no one has said anything, right? But good. Uh, I mean, do you? Ex I mean, this is again. I mean. There is this kind of de facto permanent presence from that they, they arrive early, they leave late. There's this continuous ongoing rotations and exercises. Do you see at what point do you see this turning into infrastructure and permanent, like de real permanent presence, not just the simulation of permanent presence through rotations, but when we start seeing permanent Russian bases, are we seeing infrastructure being built up? Do we expect? some of these troops to not just remain for a couple of weeks after Zapat, but to basically throw down roots, if you will, right? Put, 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 uh, put, put down the infrastructure uh, for, a per for, for, a, for a real permanent presence. Do you see it moving in that direction? Yeah, I think the Joint Training Center is a real step in that direction. Uh -huh. really, and I think that we're, we're probably going to see a growth of permanent Russian military presence in Belarus. I think it needs to be gradual and they're going to salami slice it. One, they don't want 
an internal political reaction within Belarus of people basically getting the sense that Belarus is being absorbed much more visibly militarily right. in, into uh, into uh, not just sort of, you know, Russia's orbit, but more important, more clearly sort of in obvious way as part of, you know, the Russian right. general staff's planning, which from the Russian general staff very much is a key component of their planning for how they feel forces in the Western strategic direction and how they conduct a potential fight against the coalition of NATO forces, right? But that... From the standpoint of the average citizen, it cannot be such a sharp move, right, where one day sort of suddenly there's Russian bases spring up in Belarus, or suddenly Lukashenko just gives them um, a very, very large, clear, visible concession. So I think what's right. happening is that they're very gradually slicing this. Right? right. But they're going in one direction, and that direction is unmistakable then. Yeah, of course. I mean, of course. And, I mean the way I see this is it's a soft annexation. It's going on in the military sphere. It's going on in the economic sphere, and it's going on in the political sphere. It's going, and I I like the way you say salami tactics, because that's effectively the way it's happening. But it's it's this frog being boiled in in, in water, and it's it's it, it, it's very clear that the temperature of the water is rising. So I think the challenge for Russia is that they very much want to maintain Belarus within. A privileged sphere of influence that they want Belarus as part of an extended defense strategy is a clear Russian buffer against both NATO expansion and also European Union expansion. On the other hand, they don't want to pay for it. Right. The only challenge, the only challenge with the annexation analogy, right, is there's always been this this uh, fairly consistent friction in uh, Russia's approach to the former Soviet space, at least those parts that Russian leaders believe to be part of their geopolitical space, is they want to control it, but they don't really want to pay for it, right? Right. And and so they want to have the um, the critical sort of decisive influence over the strategic orientation of the country and the country's decision, particularly in the security sphere, right? But they also don't want to uh, they don't want to continuously subsidize the country or necessarily own it in that state. And in fact, Russian resources are constrained. You know, it's not if if we were just to be you know pursue kind of dark hypotheticals, it's not clear that Russia has the resources or desire to absorb uh, Belarus with, with its population. So I think the challenge for Moscow is, yes, they have an opportunity here, on the one hand. On the other hand, they're trying to orchestrate a transition from Lukashenko while maintaining you know, a regime and their influence in Belarus, right. which is a challenge, because historically, Russia's ability to order politics in neighboring states has not been great. Um, right. They're just not just not great at it. I think that, that the, ev the evidence will support that argument. Not for lack of trying, just for lack of success. Um, so they're better at it when they do it stealthily. And what I see them doing in Belarus, in addition to all the military activity that we're looking at here, is you're seeing Kremlin-connected oligarchs snapping up, you know, tr or trying to snap up the crown jewels of the Belarusian economy, particularly in the potash industry. Um, Belarus Kali, Ural Kali is trying to snap up Belarus Kali and things like that. That's what I see going on. And then this way, they don't have to. I mean, it's paid for in that sense. If Russia gains the the, the, the crown jewels of the Belarusian economy, um, the, 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 those crown jewels aren't much, but they are. You know, you you, you do have twenty percent of the global potash market, for example, coming out of coming out of Belarus. And I think that's happening in parallel with these with this military piece. And I I call it a soft annexation with the stress on soft, right, and the stress on stealth. Um, it's not going to be an annexation a la Crimea. You know, it's not going to be a shock and awe operation. It's going to be you're boiling the frog in water, and they're still nominally independent, but they, you know, for all intents and purposes, are a Russian colony. I think that's where it's headed. Yeah, I mean, look, that's, Brian, as always, I think that's a fair argument. I think that uh, it remains to be seen how this is going to shake out in terms of Russia being able to get the things they want in dollars, whether it's scoop up these major state enterprises uh, and attain a much stronger military presence or a much more decisive military presence in terms of their security requirements and needs versus being able to shape the politics and also uh, maintaining the balance between costs and the gains you're looking to achieve in Belarus. But very clear, but to me, it's very clear that some years ago, you know, colleagues in the West were looking at Belarus as an opportunity after Ukraine, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I think it's very fair. In fact, I was, I was among them. Yeah, totally fair. I'll be frank. I was not, you know, but I'm remember the Soviet Union, and uh, you know, like we're <laughs> for for Europe. Sometimes, sometimes, if you're an optimist and you're a pessimist, and the pessimist is a fatalist. So no, like, once, <laughs> once again, you were right and I was wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, all right. I'll say personally, I was not. Um, and 
And and my my view was that okay, people made the attempt to engage with Lukashenko and and uh, and see constructively what the art of the possible was with that regime during that intervening period post twenty fourteen. Um, I think that that obviously gave Russia some concern. Uh, now the situation is very much reversed, right? And it, let's be frank. Also, from a U.S. strategy standpoint, it's been become very clear that for this administration, number one primary focus is China. That Europe's a secondary theater, and that countries like Belarus are very, very secondary or tertiary within that secondary theater. Right. right? That's become very visible. Um, and so I think that from a Russian standpoint. If anything, they probably have time. That is, they're not in a rush in terms right. of in terms of what they're doing in Belarus. There is not a strong counterparty. There's not a strong competitor for right. what they are trying to do in Belarus. That's very clear. All right. At least that, this is this is my personal take on. Big asterisk caveat: I am very far from the world's leading expert on Belarus. I would easily, you know, turn turn that conversation to you. But from a military perspective, I would say one of the challenges with Zapad is. And that's what always worried me. The most likely prospect for a fight between Russia and NATO was never Russia waking up one morning and saying, oh, gosh, I never knew Lithuania was part of the Soviet Union before. I think uh, we should go take that territory back. How come nobody briefed me that Lithuania was part of the Soviet Union? That wasn't a scenario, right? That wasn't the real thinking about it, okay? Defense planning scenarios, to be clear, will always have some artifice behind it because they're meant to simulate things. But if we're realistic about a likely crisis, right, to me, the most worrying scenario was always a political crisis in Belarus, where Lithuania and Poland are involved to attain their influence, their interests, to pursue their policies from, from their perspective, right? The U.S. is involved as well, but much more uh, secondarily with sort of, you know, kind of keeping in this peripheral vision. Right. The crisis unfolds in a way that is surprising to Moscow, Right. And Russia feels that it needs to use military force because mm -hmm. non-military instruments have failed, which we have seen before over the last, you know, 30 years across uh, uh, the former Soviet Union. And, and this leads to essentially a meeting engagement, right? That there is a, you know, a spiral decision-making model where different sides make decisions, like right? iterative decisions, trying to make the best choices for what they think will attain their own mm -hmm. security. Mm -hmm. And this leads to, a, and these choices all have risks. Like I'm not a big believer in accidental war. Most wars are not, to be kind, most conflicts are not accidents. They're the results of conscious choices and the risk being taken by leaders. Leaders taking decisions that they know have a genuine risk of war involved mm -hmm. in what they're doing, uh, or a real chance of military escalation. So that's how that scenario potentially unfolds. And what's been happening in Belarus in the last year, I'll be frank, Brian, it matches very closely to historic Russian scenarios for Zapad, right? I mean, obviously, there isn't sort of Poland-Lithuania militarily intervening to try to carve up Belarus. Yeah, I don't see that happening. Right, yeah, of course not. I mean, this is always the the tragicomic fantasy that somebody out there is deeply excited about Belarusian territory and really wants it. Um, I'm, I'm no offense to any Belarusian colleagues, but I think this is deeply unlikely that anybody's right. out there rubbing their hands, just trying to get their hands on on Belarus, but yeah, but but be that what it may, like what the, the, uh, the point here is that from a Russian perspective, there is an attempt by neighboring NATO states, right, to back an opposition and to pursue regime change in Belarus, right. Mm -hmm. That's I think that's a Russian assessment, and that that may result eventually in a military conflagration. And that's kind of their, their story for the road to war in Zappa that they simulate. And so these are actually a bit too close to each other for comfort. I would be wary about how, how the political situation has been developing over the last uh, year and a half or so, along while looking at the actual story behind what Zappa is as an exercise and what mm. it's well, that is a um, that that is a a good uh, a good note to to shift gears on. Um, and I want to kind of broaden the aperture because what I see here is a qualitative change in the security calculation on NATO's eastern flank. And we could talk about that a little bit more in the second half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the Zappa 2021 exercises in the context of a broader Russian military buildup in its western military district, most notably in Kaliningrad. 
I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from historic Mount Vernon, Virginia, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So, Michael, back in March, you and I spoke on this podcast about Russia's military buildup in its western exclave of Kaliningrad. Since then, the expansion and the modernization of Russian forces there has has picked up even more steam. Um, in May, for example, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu announced the deployment of, quote, some 20 major military units in the Western military district before the start of 2021. He was talking about Kaliningrad. What is happening in Kaliningrad? What has been happening since we last talked about? And quite frankly, you only need to look at a map to understand that what's happening in Kaliningrad appears to be related to what's happening in Belarus, if I'm not mistaken. So what are your thoughts on that, Michael? We'll kind of update our last discussion on Kaliningrad. Sure. Uh, so Kaliningrad <laughs> continues to receive a uh, new military kit. Uh, it was, to be frank, probably uh, almost up until 2013, more of a neglected part of mm-hmm. uh, the Western military district. And then things began to really turn around. Uh, there were real issues there in terms of morale, in terms of housing availability for forces, in terms of the uh, level of modernization of their kit. And a lot has changed in the last five, six years. But particularly in the last uh, probably two years, we saw a very clear march towards force uh, structure expansion and reworking of the units in Kaliningrad and the 11th Army Corps. So what do we see there? And actually 11th Army Corps, but of course, uh, uh, years of investment in Kaliningrad air defense, modernizing it from S-300 systems to S-400s, uh, modernizing the missile brigade in Kaliningrad, uh, putting in a pretty sizable and robust uh, coastal uh, defense uh, system, basically coastal defense cruise missiles and the like, batteries. Uh, we had in uh, late last year, basically, it was very clear that they announced that they were uh, reorganizing the units, establishing the 18th Motor Rifle Division in Kaliningrad while still keeping some of the units that are there. And this is a, a sizable force expansion to, for those who understand that basically using uh, the existing brigade there as the basis upon which you're going to build a division, you're still going from you know a formation that has, let's say, maybe an average 3,500 troops to something that has 8,500 troops and a much larger amount of mechanized equipment, armor, artillery, and the like. So Kaliningrad, the force structure there is growing larger. Now, obviously now overnight, I always try to remind people that whenever Russia announces a new division, you know, it's like somebody announces that, you know, hey, I have good news. I've been contracted for a manuscript to write a book. Yeah, it, it, it will take them, uh, it, it, will, it will take some time to, to actually see that uh, get finished and, and, and done in reality. And so that the unit, that formation is being steadily filled out. Of course, the division doesn't get stood up overnight. So when the Russians announce the division, it takes quite a bit of time to fill out, right? And uh, what's, what's happening right now is that they're in the process of building out the 18th division. They're still filling out the 144th division, which is along Belarus's and Ukraine's kind of northern border. Uh, but what you generally see is an expansion of Russian force structure in the Western military district. You see a modernization of the units that that have been deployed there, basically an qualitative increase in capability. You see improvements in terms of the tactical aviation being deployed, air defenses, electronic warfare, and logistics capability to shift units into Belarus or into the Baltics and sustain them there, which is very important because we know 99% of the time we talk about capabilities. We spend very little time talking about operational concepts of strategy. Mm-hmm. And almost nobody wants to talk about logistics because logistics is essential but very boring. And uh, and and which is actually very deterministic of your ability 
to sustain to well, sustain the military effort. So whenever people say leave units in Belarus, the first question is logistics. <laughs> our, our our mutual friend Michael General Ben Hodges, the former commander of U.S. Army Europe, always says amateurs talk about strategy, professionals talk about logistics. Right, <laughs> right. Logistics are important. Uh, this is something that uh, I, I mean I personally like to follow, but typically never talk about because I you know I don't want everyone to turn off the podcast or whatever around <laughs> as soon as I turn to the topic. So I usually try to stay away from it, um, I, you know, <laughs> under the assumption that just because I'm interested in something doesn't mean the audience will be. But uh, the just the picture I want to talk about is like uh, Russia spends a fairly sizable amount of money on defense and a good portion of that on procurement, on procurement of new systems, modernization, R&D. It's about half of Russia's defense budget, which is far larger than a typical share of a defense budget in a Western military. And if we look at kind of overall military expenditure, you know, if you include the, you know, not Guardia, if you include various other uh, security organs, right, and forms of defense spending in Russia, what you'll probably get is that, you know, procurement R&D is about a third of that. And that's far more than you would find in, in Western uh, military expenditures, right? And Russia's been able to sustain this continuously. Whenever you see stories that, there have been cuts to Russia's defense budget. There have been this or that. The answer is that, to be frank, none of that is true. Russian defense spending has been relatively flat, but it's not been decreasing. That's just a fact. And Russia spends far more as a percentage of GDP on defense than most Western countries. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just be very frank about that, right? And it's a fairly sizable budget as well. You know, I often mention on your show whenever we discuss is that you know, people think it's something like 58 billion, maybe according to Cipri figures, but it's not. It's much closer to somewhere between 150 and 180 billion dollars. Because year. of purchasing power parity, basically. Yeah, because of adjusted purchasing power parity, right? It's not sort of a straight uh, use of purchasing power parity, but it's an adaptation of it. It's much more effective for uh, defense spending, especially when you have an autarkic defense sector like Russia right. being self-sufficient. Uh, you know, Russians don't pay salaries in dollars and they don't buy their military equipment from the United States in dollars, right? So, you know, one of the, one of the wildest things you have, the problems with, you know, using, you know, market exchange rate comparison is, you remember when uh, the currency exchange rate dropped by basically 50% in 2014? Yeah, so using, you know, your market exchange rates, Russia's defense budget got cut in half. According right. to those figures, right? In, if you measure it in dollars. In dollars, right. Whereas in real terms, it was increasing. So... Right. <laughs> So the empirical reality is that that budget was increasing, but if you convert that, that just into dollars based on currency exchange rate, you will have grossly erroneous conclusions about what's mm -hmm. happening in Russian military expenditure. You'll be way off base by about threefold. So that's kind of the challenge with that. And, and that helps explain to us how Russia is able to engage in sustained nuclear force modernization, expand this force, buy capabilities, you know, conventional advanced capabilities and the like, and also engage in this constant tempo of drills and exercises, right? Plus, they're in two conflicts. Let's not forget about that, right? They have a deployment now in the Gorno-Karabakh on top of that, right, as of late last year. Um, and, and, and people say, well, can they afford it? And the answer is yes. But the reason they can afford it is actually because they spend a lot of money. Right. How they're able to afford it. They don't have the defense budget of, of, of the U.K., now, you say this buildup in in modernization campaign in Kaliningrad and also broader, more broadly in the in, in the Western military district began in 2013. Uh, why then? I mean, is this this coincides with the you know the eve of hostilities in Ukraine? Um, what, what is this relate? Is this related to anything? Why this this process began back in 2013? So, I, okay, to be fair, I'm you know. I'm kind of using it as a ballpark periodization. I mean, the the real uh, modernization program, the first very large one to recapitalize the Russian military, began in 2011, right? The challenge is a, that Kaliningrad, outside of investments in the air defense, wasn't benefiting that much from that. If you remember, I had a blog post on the formation of, of this new yep. division in Kaliningrad kind of yep. early in the year, and I sort of humorously recall some stories of, from Kaliningrad of what the shenanigans that were taking place in that force during those years, you know, were right, right. soldiers stealing uh, BMPs, infantry fighting vehicles to go get a pack of cigarettes and like getting them stuck in the mud and all sorts of things. And eventually uh, all the leadership of, of both the Baltic fleet and the Army Corps component got fired. It got fired, essentially, uh, by 
by the Russian general staff and replaced because they were doing poorly across the board, right? So that's that's the transition that you begin to see uh, some year about, I think, five years back. And then you see a much stronger investment in the infrastructure in Kaliningrad, a much stronger investment also in modernization. And, and look, I don't try to overconnect the dots, but basically uh, Russia invested first more in Southern military district and then in units kind of opposite Ukraine and beginning to establish large formations on Ukraine's borders. And those investments began to carry over to areas like Kaliningrad, but, subs but subsequently later. I think it's just an issue of prioritization, to be frank, uh -huh. leadership okay. and prioritization. And then, of course, to the, you know, to the northern fleet as well. So right, you kind of saw like a rising tide of Russian military investment taking place, to, from my point of view, heading kind of more from south uh, from south to north and from west to east. Um, and, and, and you've seen real results on that, right? You've seen real results. In fact, Russians were demonstrating them when they deployed uh, forces opposite Ukraine's borders and in Crimea just March and April. And, right. you know, folks sometimes forget that actually 41st Army from Central Military District is still parked in Voronezh waiting for its role in Zapad. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the 41st Army didn't go home. The personnel went, but they still have a lot of their equipment parked in Voronezh. Oh. And they are simulating essentially their roles kind of follow on forces from this conflict. It's like Central Military District kind of being the reinforcements, right, for you know, the principal armies of the Western military district. And they were, and they, their explanation was that they were left to participate in Zappa. So they've been part there this whole summer since, uh, since they deployed. Right. Now, I mean, it, when I look at this whole picture, right, every, all, all the different, all the different data we're bumping up against the end. So I kind of want to tie the whole discussion sure. back together again here. When I look at this whole picture, what we see happening in Belarus, what we see happening in Kaliningrad, what we see happening in the Western military district. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but from a, from a military perspective, it seems to me that a new iron curtain is descending on Europe. Um, and it runs along the uh, the Belarusian, Kaliningrad, Polish, Lithuanian, Latvian border, if you will, right? Um, and how, how much of a qualitative change are we seeing in the security equation? If you're looking at this from the Western side of this, from the NATO side of this, and you're watching this, this development, this permanent Russian military presence in Belarus, this buildup in modernization in Kaliningrad, this overall buildup in modernization in the Western military district, and you're looking at this from the NATO side of, of, of the equation, what do you see? Do you see a qualitative change? So I think that there's first a qualitative change in terms of the military balance in the South and the Black Sea. And then I've seen over time a gradual change in capability modernization on both sides, both NATO's in terms of all the investments that UCOM have made and NATO have made, right? But also on Russia's. And then if I ask which one of those do I think is more sustainable and which country is much more serious in terms of bringing up its end of the military confrontation, right, in, in, in this part of the world. I mean, I'm sorry to say, but it's definitely Russia. Right? Because, of, because of political will, basically. Well, because of political will, because they're much more committed to maintaining defense spending, uh, even in a time of sustained economic stagnation. They, this can and will go on for a very long time. And because for them, this is an area of core vital interest, where they, mm -hmm. the United States has very clearly switched uh, in terms of priorities to the Asia-Pacific region and to contesting China and looking at Russia and Europe as a secondary theater. That's obvious. And that makes sense for U.S. strategy, right? But somewhat now leads Europeans in the middle to talk about what are they going to do. Because the Russian threat's not going to go, go away anywhere, right? Like the way I like to think about Russia is first, it's an enduring power. Second, it's a persistent power, right? You and, and lots of people come up with alibis for dealing with Russian power in international politics, right? One which is to ignore it or to say that Russia's a declining power, so maybe this whole thing will sort itself out down the line somehow. But uh, but it never does. And so and so this part I challenge Brian about this is, you know, if you sort of ask like what's my picture, what's my angle on this? Folks need to maintain attention to the security environment in Europe, all right? The, the single most powerful military in Europe, right, not including NATO as a coalition, right, as an alliance, is Russia, right? And when the principal military power in Europe, as far as European powers go, is the one country that doesn't have a stake in the current European security architecture, right? right. And this is not a sustainable long-term situation, so you're always one crisis and one conflict away from the collapse of something lots of people have taken for granted for a long time, right? 
And, and what we're seeing in Belarus, Ukraine, these other conflicts, these are principally, to me, wars of Soviet succession. This is still the ongoing dissolution of the Soviet yep. Union, and that's why the region's not stable, and you clearly have the successor kind of imperial power still trying to hold on to its influence in geopolitical space. So no, as much as people like to, you cannot just run, turn off and switch to China and, and, and assume that the situation will get stabilized or will be managed at a low cost. There's just the degree of attention and resources required. So you would say we need to continue what we are doing in, in on, on NATO's eastern flank, or do we need to ramp it up? Um, but your fears are clearly are that we're not going to maintain the commitment. Yeah, my concern is that we're not going to we're not going to maintain the commitment investment resources. And if we if we shun some of this off to European allies, I don't know if they're going to take it up either. Right. On the one hand, they complain about American credibility or reliability. But I mean, it's not clear they're going to step up to manage this to manage this either. You know, from your question, should we increase it? I think that's a highly optimistic question. My first question is, can we maintain it? Can mm -hmm. we maintain the resources currently being committed? And, you know, can we avoid overly drawing down here and repeating the mistakes we made, you know, 1990s and 2000, when people said Russia doesn't matter anymore, it's declining as a power, you know, we don't need a lot of attention and focus on this. We don't need a lot of money spent on, you right. know, uh, uh, on this problem set and whatnot. And we reaped. By the way, we reaped very much what we sowed in 2014, as just my personal right. point of view, as, as a result of that divestment of resources, and it took a lot of time and effort to recapitalize. Yeah, we basically ceded the former Soviet space, with the exception of the Baltic states, to, the, to, 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 to Russia de facto, even though nobody said that. Um, that that I mean, you and I were talking off mic about that last week, actually, about this this sense that Russia basically thought it had its sphere of influence in the former Soviet space because we had effectively ceded it until later, until until, until the, the the period of the Rose Revolution and the Orange Revolution in the early 2000s, and then that was a rude awakening for Russia. I mean, I'm, my thinking is we do we have to have a new containment policy in place here um, because I see. I mean, I. I I was expecting you to say there's a qualitative change, and I think because I, th I think it's obvious that there, that there is, um, and I sincerely hope the the, the administration does not deprioritize this theater um, because it has a way of just coming back to haunt you when when you, when you do. And finally, I, I like to think the United States can chew gum and walk at the same time and and, and deal with the China threat and the Russia threat simultaneously. Um, I, our, our allies in Europe are certainly counting on us to do that. Um, any last thoughts before we wrap it up for the week, Michael? Sure. I mean, Brian, I agree with you. I think I think we absolutely can. And that seems to be at least the model of the Biden administration. The question is, will we? People can walk and chew gum at the same time. Bureaucracies often struggle to do that for whatever right. reason. If you watch them, uh, they tend to be they can be pretty narrow minded about things. So I don't think that I don't think Russia will be forgotten. But I personally am looking to see what the prioritization shakeout really will be. And uh, the degree of attention and, and the real perception of Russia as uh, an enduring challenge or problem set. I mean, I agree, you know, perhaps with your assessment about containment, but as a word, we're all trying to interpret what would containment in 2021 mean. And I know this is significant for you. You're working on it. Other people are writing up. I'm writing a book on it at the moment. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I think, absolutely. And I think, listen, I think that's brilliant. But one of the challenges is figuring out what does containment mean in 2021 and how is the context of today and Russia different from, you know, the last right. time we seriously talked about containment. So uh, I'm open to lots of approaches. To me, the, it's the definition and what we're talking about yeah. in terms of substance that's the question. Well, the term I'm playing with is called hybrid containment, which is a mixture of kinetic containment, classical, you know, 1945 George Kennan style containment with kind of this non-kinetic piece, too, that I think has to be woven into it, um, containing strategic corruption, containing disinformation and containing the weaponization of organized crime and all of these other uh, non-kinetic components that, that, that Russia's kind of brought into the mix. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm working on this now. I got, I got 18 months to do it and hopefully I'll come up with something by the end. On that note, I guess we can wrap it up for this week. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from historic Mount Vernon, Virginia, where I hear he's on a land that was once owned by George Washington, has been military analyst Mike Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the DNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Thank you, Michael, for an enlightening discussion. It was, uh, it was educational for me, as always. Yeah, thanks for having me back on your show. 
Always glad to have you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life and cleaning up my many messes. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Virtual Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. Until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.